0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is serial entrepreneur Micah Yost. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom. Micah Yost is a father, husband, and serial entrepreneur with a bachelor's in the arts and a master's in business. He started his career in outside sales before moving to creative leadership. Over the past 10 years, Micah has started a handful of companies. Some have failed and some have succeeded. Currently, Micah is focused on building populous co-working. He has consulted on $1 billion worth of fundraising deals for area companies and consults with founders in the US, Africa, and South America. Micah, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. This this will be very fun. So, serial entrepreneur. I mean, it sounds like the positive side of um, of, of a sort of obsession, and it, it would be great to explore that a little bit yes. further, right? Um, yes. So, yes.
1: On entrepreneurship. What are the attributes for a good entrepreneur? Do you think? And that's a that's a great question. You know, there's a lot of people. Who are smarter than me that have spent a lot of time trying to figure that out, and you know, probably the real answer is it's hard to say. I'm not exactly sure, but um, you know, there there has to be a a certain amount of uh, desire to build, to create, to go against the grain, if you will, or uh, push back or fight against um, something, and and then it just takes a lot of uh, uh, resilience. But at the same time, I think that the assumption is often, you know, I don't buy into the fact that entrepreneurs are born. I believe that entrepreneurs are made. I believe entrepreneurship can be taught. And so I think there's that desire, or that that thought sometimes that either you are or you are not an entrepreneur. And I don't uh, believe that to be true. I think life can sure uh, give you the the traits that you might need to be a great entrepreneur. And that's awesome. But I also think a lot of it can be taught taught and learned as well. I think that's interesting that you make that point because I
0: suspect that those that study entrepreneurship identify that one of the main challenges to building an entrepreneurial ecosystem and and cultivating that is the simple belief amongst people that they aren't cut out to be an entrepreneur. Yep. So, So what perhaps makes you so certain that it that you're right, for example, and these people that don't believe
1: they have the capacity to be an entrepreneur, that they're wrong about that. Uh, I think what really makes me confident in that is the fact that I continually have to do things I never thought I would have been able to do. And that's been, you know, my personal experience. If, if you would have come to me five years ago or 10 years ago and said, hey, here's the things you're going to have to do. I would have said, there's no way I can't, I can't do that. You know, I'm not wired that way. Or I I would never be able to do that. I think we all have the capacity to do a lot more than, than we think we can. I think we all have the capacity to, uh, get through a lot more than we think we can. I think many of us need far less than we think we need, but a lot of us just have to experience that you know it's hard to it's hard to explain that sometimes and so i think that my experience tells me that entrepreneurship is not something it's not binary you just are you are not i think it's something you can learn i think it's something you have to learn and grow in constantly that kind of is by definition what it is to be an entrepreneur is to you know my my favorite description of an entrepreneur is, uh, you know, building, building a company is like uh, jumping off a cliff and building your parachute on the way down. That just kind of is what it is. You are always learning and adjusting and figuring it out. That that's what it is. I like these
0: aspects of entrepreneurship, these attributes that you've identified. But there's also this element of subversion too that mm. you mentioned. You, you talked about going against the grain. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if you have any particular um, any examples. We've we'll certainly come to to your life in entrepreneurship, but any examples sure. you like about um, being resilient? Sure. About maybe being a little bit maybe countercultural
1: or subversive or going against the grain. So every society and business and organization needs processes and systems, and those are all going to be built to be efficient and. The bigger an organization gets or the bigger a country gets, the more efficient those processes try to become because that's what they're built to do. And the challenge with efficiency is it will, by its very nature, drive out things that are different, that don't fit that system or process. That's what it does. So because of that, anytime you're trying to build something new, you will be going against the proverbial system, the whatever it is you're trying to work within, the the whether it's cultural entrepreneurship, nonprofit work, or the business you're trying to disrupt, um, you will be going against the system, whatever that happens to be and where you're trying to disrupt. And because of that, there will be pushback, there will be headwind in some types of work or or companies or whatever, it's more difficult than others. But I think every entrepreneur that I've ever met or talked to or studied or read has constantly had to be the person with the headwind, pushing against the grain, pushing against the system that wants to drive out anything that's new or, or different or doesn't fit. Do you remember your first business? Yeah. So here's what's interesting about me. And, and this probably goes again back to this idea of can you teach entrepreneurship? I really did not discover what that even was until, um, until I was probably 25 or 26 years old. So, so maybe 10, 12 years ago. I grew up a pastor's kid, which I, I loved and enjoyed. Um, but I had no concept of business or entrepreneurship or, or what that meant at all. I really didn't get involved in starting a business and what that meant until I, I went to a, a, a conference that used to take place here in Omaha called the Big Omaha Conference. And this is, again, getting back by 10 or 11 years ago. And I remember going to that conference and looking around the room and thinking, this is what I am. I don't even know what the word for it is yet, but whatever all these people are, I'm that. And then I kind of started to discover, oh, this is entrepreneurship. And, and I, I was a, a fine arts major in my undergrad and I loved art, but I, I always assumed that creativity and business didn't go together. You know, business was spreadsheets and structure and create, then creativity was over here. And so, for me, I found kind of the intersection of the two things that I really enjoy in entrepreneurship. I, I thought, oh wow like i can be I can be creative and i can I can try things and build things and do new stuff in the business world and and so that 's really what kind of when I found entrepreneurship and um, and started uh, working in and around it and, and eventually trying to invest in some things and build some things and, and, and that type of deal. So that, that's how I got started. What was your first
0: uh, foray into what you regard as entrepreneurship? Yeah.
1: So I, um, I kind of eased into it. I have worked, uh, so I worked for a consulting company that was based here in Omaha and we did digital product design. Um, when I started working for them, almost all of our work was in Silicon Valley. And so I spent um, a lot of time traveling to Silicon Valley. And again, you know, that was kind of my continuing to just kind of bake, if you will, in the mindset process thoughts of these entrepreneurs and getting into learning about how they were building their products. And then um, I, I jumped in with, a local uh, coffee shop owner autumn Pruitt uh, is her name she's she's great she owns a uh, Hardy Coffee Company here in the Omaha area I jumped in with her as kind of an investor partner um, this is a number of years ago and that was kind of my first foray into I guess uh, what co co-owning entrepreneurial you know whatever small business um, started a consulting company after that and and then kind of the then off i went so uh yeah you know since since then i've started a a few different businesses and some of them have have gone well and and some of them haven't um but that's that's kind of part of the gig it's kind of part of the deal i think. It's Alabama pop the question but when i showed you the ring
0: you just looked at me and screamed that's so sweet let me So being a serial entrepreneur, you've suggested that there's this whole variety of endeavors that you've been involved with. Yeah. So I'm trying to work out for you, and I'm sure that this is different for every entrepreneur. Maybe you can correct me in this, but what are the criteria for you that make you make this spidey sense of entrepreneurship in the back of your neck say, oh, this is a venture or this is an idea that I want to get behind in some way. So how would you describe these criteria that, that that, that you make these choices about the businesses to pursue and those that you don't?
1: Yeah, that's a great, great question. And uh, it's probably something that, you know, every entrepreneur or investor spends their entire career trying to develop that uh, spidey sense, if you will. Right. And, let me see. How do I answer your question? So, so let me answer it for me personally first. Um, you know, for me, I, I love building things. I get excited about opportunity. So what I've had to continually learn is to not jump at every opportunity, which I was really bad at early on. And some may say I'm still not that great at, but getting better, more self-aware at least. I'm continually trying to get better at finding opportunities where I can add unique value where my particular skills or experience or network or whatever would add some sort of value that maybe would be unique or, or others couldn't as easily do. So that's ultimately, you know, for me, what I'm trying to, to find, um, that can be hard hard and difficult and so that means sometimes saying no to things that i think are fascinating but i realize like i can't add anything to that you know someone should do that but not me so that's for me how it works i, I would also add to that though i am a big believer in bet on the horse and not the race i think it's success in entrepreneurship is much more about the founder than it is about the particular idea, because as we were kind of talking earlier, you know, building your parachute as you, as you jump off the cliff, every idea will pivot and adjust and, and change wherever you start is not where you'll end. If that's, that one thing is inevitably true. And so I'm much more interested, whether it be myself or the, or the people I would partner with in people that I feel like have that ability, that unique, skill set to, to change and adjust and pivot and create versus trying to find this the one opportunity. Is there
0: an example of,
1: um, of something
0: that you've turned down because mm-hmm. it didn't fit that criteria where you felt, good idea, you should do this, but it's not me that should be the
1: partner or leader on this? Uh, so I started uh, Midland University Code Academy um, couple of years ago in partnership with, with the university. It actually, it's still around, and um, I think it's doing, doing well. And that was one where I realized about a year and a half into it, like, this is really not right for me. You know, I, I think this opportunity needs to exist. I want it to continue to exist. Um, I actually happened to have someone working for me at the time at the university that I thought you're really the right person to run with this. (laughs) You know more than I do about this. I wasn't uniquely qualified in some particular way to push that forward. And so I handed it off. I, I walked away from that one. I said, you know, like this, this, I think this has a bright future with someone else, uh, I don't have anything left to give this. And so I handed it off and it's still going and, and that person's still running it. And I think it will have a bright future, but I I was a limit on that. And and I just realized like all of this stuff is too hard for me. I mean, there's the basics principles, the block and tackle of taking something from zero to one. And I understand those things and we got it off the ground and it was doing fine. It was making money and it was doing fine. But you know beyond that, just block and tackle pieces you know the the passion, the vision um the unique skill set to kind of set that apart as its own unique thing. I realized pretty quickly like I don't have that, and more importantly, I realized that hey, this person that's teaching here they obviously have that, and they should run with this and i I think that has proved uh successful for for everyone so you know and that's so then that's interesting you you mentioned earlier discussing the successes and failures you know unfortunately again in entrepreneurship we don't always have the luxury of the black and white cut and dry I mean honestly in life (laughs) we could probably do a whole whole podcast on that right like how you know it's not always black and white and so this whole idea of like was it successful or was it a failure that's a really hard I'm not sure things always quite fit in just one of those two categories, you know? You know, again, looking at that Code, Code Academy thing, like, on one hand, I could chalk that up to, well, that was a failure, right? Like, I'm done. I, I, I walked away. I did a year and a half, and I... this that that At the same time, uh, it still exists. It's still there, still going. I think the person who's running it is doing an exceptional job, and it was a great fit for them. So you kind of chalk those up to... Learning experiences for me, right? Like I matured. I learned a lot about myself. Um, I learned a lot about building things. And then if you learn from it and you grow from it, I'm not sure it can fall squarely in the failure category. So, so let's pick up on that then, because
0: I think you and I can have a, a more measured textured discussion around it when I say that the idea of failure in entrepreneurship is a necessity and it's always a golden opportunity to learn. It's become a bit of a trope in some ways. Yes. I guess I want to invite you to maybe give some definition to what is failure, what is success in entrepreneurship. But what does that mean to you? And then maybe give us some of these examples so that we can understand maybe some of the texture and the nuance to what that really means, and what learning from failure really means, and perhaps what not being um, overly, you know, immodest about
1: success should look Mm. like too. Yeah, a lot of us want to see that uh, proverbial chart of up and to the right. You know, if you can imagine a chart in your head, and the line just is straight, you know, up and to the right, like the side of a right angle triangle. What you find in entrepreneurship and probably other places is even as you're moving up and to the right, it's really this squiggly way up and then way down and then back up a little bit and then down a little bit, right? Uh, the essential two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. And so I think becoming a great entrepreneur is, is an exercise as well in being able to manage yourself and your team and your idea and navigate through that process and the reason i bring that up is because you can be a success one day and a failure the next day you can be a success one hour and a failure the next hour i know i've experienced that many times Um, i walk out of a, a creative meeting and someone tells me "Oh, our social media is killing it and we got you know we did this thing and all these people responded. I just, I just had one the other day. Um, I'll give you a very specific example. I do some consulting work for, for a local entrepreneur and we um, decided a masterclass would be a great way to sell this new product we're building for him. It's an educational university. I've helped him build the university, get it off the ground, marketed the masterclass. 650 people created an account at the university to attend the masterclass. Big win. I was feeling great. The masterclass went great. Three people converted and purchased the product. So just great example of within, you know, within hours, you can go from, yay, we did it to, oh, that, that failed miserably. And, and so, you know, not to dodge the question a little bit, but it is more nuanced than just I succeeded or I failed. And so I think when you view it that way, that is what allows you then to, quote, learn from failure because you have to realize that even if an entire company fails, to just look at it that way is to miss all of the nuance and opportunity to, to learn both um, as someone from the outside looking in as well as for the founder. You have to be able to get much more granular down to the, the ups and downs, what worked, what didn't where were you successful in in some ways? Where, Where did you fail in some ways? And as an entrepreneur, you have to be able to own all of that and acknowledge that it will always be that way, because your job is to do things that other people haven't done yet, which means you will inevitably get some right and not get some right. And that's just how it goes. And ultimately, you hope that you get 51% of it, right? And it's enough to, you know, to push, push you over the edge. You know, you, I, I, when I'm talking to younger kids about entrepreneurship, I use batting average all the time to talk about it, right? I mean, a great slugger might hit two or three out of 10 pitches. That's it. You missed seven. Whiff, totally whiff, strike out. And you've got to be able to look at the, the nuance of it, right? And over time, be able to see Uh, hopefully that you're moving generally up and to the right you are listening
0: to lives we'll be back after the break I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is LIVES. My guest today is serial entrepreneur, Micah Yost. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom. What is the entrepreneurial
1: ecosystem like in Omaha? It's in a tough spot. It's plateaued. That's the short answer. We have some really good leaders in Omaha there are some Um, companies we can look at like flywheel builder trend huddle others who have had have good good success and i think we can we can point to and say you can build you know companies venture funded companies in omaha for me personally this is the case for everyone but for me entrepreneurship is broader than just the venture capital funded tech companies um for many people, they're very focused just there, and that's, that's great. I really, when I talk about entrepreneurship for me, you know, for me, it's, it's small businesses as well, and, you know, anyone that's building a, a company, and I think here in Omaha and Nebraska in general, we really plateaued. Um, I really spent a lot of my time working with, talking with, associating with younger, smaller businesses and companies with a couple of employees or people raising early funding or just getting off the ground, that kind of thing. And um, what really limits us here in Omaha is a lack of capital, money, cash. And it's the thing we don't always love to talk about, especially in Nebraska where we're all Nebraska nice. But the reality is if you want to play in the entrepreneurship game, um, you need great entrepreneurs and you need an ecosystem and that ecosystem has to have money. We have to have early stage cash and capital available. And it's just, it's just not, there's not enough money in the game right now. Um, we're a very conservative state. And so there's a lot of money in the state, but it, it's not at risk in, in companies. No one's really been able to, to solve that or figure that part out yet scale and so that's I think I think I love what startup collaborative does I think they're great at building and educating entrepreneurs and developing their ideas with them and fortunately in motion, which was the other accelerator's kind of been offline right now so startup collaborative is kind of the, it's the only game in town if you will I think it's a good one um, but even if you even training and building and educating entrepreneurs, uh, I run a co-working space, giving them a place to work. All those things are important, but if you can't write checks for them to get going, we're, we're stuck. And so I would say generally right now we're just a bit stuck.
0: Part of the education then is not just what is happening, say at startup accelerators, but there is perhaps, uh, dare I say, um, kind of a Warren Buffett view of smart, savvy, long-term investing. Yes, and not risk taking in that regard. Correct. And so maybe it's a cultural thing uh, here that those people that have had success monetarily or have venture capital to spend play it too safe, and that's where the education needs to happen.
1: Yeah, I think I think the culture we're missing is reinvesting in this community. You know, I say all of these things, realizing again that I there's a lot of things I don't understand and. I could be totally wrong. I probably am wrong. But here's what I think, right? Like, you know, you have, say, like a TD Ameritrade. Great, actually, startup story here from Nebraska grew to a very successful company uh, here in Nebraska. And it sold. And it doesn't look like we'll see any of that capital reinvested into small businesses and startups in, in Nebraska. Maybe it'll happen, but as of now, it doesn't it, it appear in any way to do so. And so, you know, there are great success stories of, say, non tech companies, um, Omaha Stakes, obviously, you know, Warren Buffett, uh, Oriental Trading Company, um, that have started here, or have grown here and have done great, but we're missing at least even in those companies that reinvestment into the ecosystem. And I think what we're missing is that, that general thought or value, I should say in this area that we have to develop our entrepreneurs and we have to develop our businesses, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis up until about 2018 for that 10 years, all of the net new job creation was in small businesses. All large organizations were net zero because they laid off so many people that even though they were hiring people back, it was net net zero. So all of the job gain that happened after the financial crisis was small businesses. We, I feel, it, it's a value thing. Like we have to, from from corporate to to government officials to everybody. Like we've got to get that culture going where we realize that man we've got to support and champion and fund our entrepreneurs in this community because it makes our community stronger it's job growth it creates good jobs um you know it's a it's a great alleviation to poverty there's so many great things about it um and i just don't feel like we've got that value in our bones around here yet i don't know if it'll ever happen but I, i hope it does
0: Uh, well, let's turn into the small businesses that you are currently working on now. I'm curious about populous co-working. Tell us what that is and tell us why you see the the, the, the value in that.
1: Yeah. So um, I kind of had this desire to create a, a place, a, a density, if you will, for Entrepreneurs, And again, not just for, for tech entrepreneurs, but um, for anyone that's trying to start, build, grow companies, or for anyone that just has that entrepreneurial mindset, if, if you will. And um, that really came up about four years ago, maybe five years ago at this point. And it's just taken quite some time to, to get that off the ground. But that's really the vision behind Populous is to champion entrepreneurs, small business owners, um, whether they work here or not. Uh, I I hope that in some ways over time, the populace logo and brand will become kind of that, uh, that champion for entrepreneurship in our, in our state for small business owners, for advocating for them, promoting them, championing them, encouraging them. Um, because again, I, I feel like, um, uh, you know, I'm from Omaha. I grew up in Omaha. I've been here all my life, and I think for our state to continue to be successful over the next couple of decades, we've got to grow businesses, home, homegrown businesses. We need those opportunities, and um, hopefully Populous can be a home for a lot of those people, but also can be a brand that champions um, opportunities for them even outside of our co-working space.
0: I kind of have to d- jump in because I guess for many people, regrettably, or, or maybe lessons to be learned. But when people hear about co-working, unfortunately, what comes to mind is WeWork or the, the yeah. We company. Yeah, it seemed to be it was a real estate company masquerading as a tech company, masquerading as a as a community completely, builder. Completely agree. Yes, and it, so it feels like they just pretended to be something that just really weren't clear-eyed about. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I just wonder how you're kind of responding to the changing environment
1: in the world around um,
0: attitudes towards co-working.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're exactly right. We work, um, they, they got off, they got far away from their core business and um, that, you know, that imploded on them. They're not the first startup to do that and they won't be the last, that's for sure. But their core, their core product of co-working um, it's still quite successful actually there. Um, you know, the other, if, if I don't get, we work, then the, the other assumption I often get from people is, Oh, co is co-working. That's just like putting some folding tables in a room, right? Like what, you all just kind of sing kumbaya and, and like, no, that's, you know, trying to sell community to people can be a difficult pitch. Um, and, and so, you know, Populous, our, our goal was to create a, a professional space, um, Maybe a little bit of an elevated experience, also a healthy experience. We offer uh, like a fifteen hundred square foot uh, fitness center here. All of our offices have sit stand desks available to people. Um, we also provide free mental health counseling for our entire membership here on site. And so our goal was to create a space that is is so much more than just a desk to sit at. You know, a, a space that honestly does support entrepreneurs and what they do. Coworking as a, as a model is shifting because of coronavirus. Um, often the key to the business side of the model was density. And in New York, that meant basically stack people on top of each other. <laughs> We're not ready for that in the Midwest quite yet. Um, that is obviously changing because of the coronavirus. But the, the prevailing uh, trend that is not changing is the desire for flexibility. Companies, organizations, even coming out of the virus, are increasingly interested in in flexible work solutions, short-term commitments, the ability to flex people in and out, remote work, all that kind of thing. And so I think that flexibility piece is the piece that will continue to grow and expand and why we'll see this, you know, what we did call co-working, which is really kind of morphing into just shared flexible workspace. And essentially, we're all, just, um, we're all just trying to be more efficient. We all realized, like, wow, uh, maybe a corporate office has four conference rooms that the four of them get used an hour a day. The rest of the time just sit empty. Well, why can't we share those resources and be more efficient? And so that's really kind of the, the idea, the core idea behind co-working that I think will kind of continue to grow uh, into the future.
0: What are you Seeing as the trends and changes around how we
1: work. Yeah, that's a great question. So To answer that question. I will do a very brief tour of the history of work So if you go way back people lived where they worked right that that's how work started Especially if you were a tradesperson, which was most of work you worked where you lived That's just how, how it was and then as as things pr- progressed um, you know, even into early Roman culture and, and and that society, like people still worked where they lived. You might live upstairs and, and work downstairs. And then we got into kind of colonial era or, or right before that. And you started to see offices kind of come together, but it's still you would find that like all of the clerks still lived in that place where they where they worked. And so you got these kind of bigger collections that came together, but it was still live work. So it wasn't really until the factories showed up in the early 19th century that we started to separate work and live because these, this work that people started to do at the factory, you couldn't do at home. And so they would go to the factory and then go back home. So especially in American culture, you start to see this huge, that, that drove culture more and more and more people lived worked separate and um, then of course the office that's you know the office building came off of that that trend what we're seeing now is and what we have been seeing even pre-coronavirus was that trend back towards the ability to do your job at home or close to your home or at least not have to go to an office That trend predates coronavirus, but what the virus has just thrust upon us, thrust upon these businesses, is to have to accept that. We have to close our office building. Our people are going to have to figure out how to work from home, and they shockingly, oh, that works. And then people start asking the question, well, then why do they even have to be in the same city where our headquarters is? I guess they could just kind of work anywhere. So this this is the flexibility that's being just kind of amplified now. And so you look at something like coworking, and that really is a huge piece of the model. It's this shared, flexible space. And so I think as companies start to open remote offices or let empl- you know, hire employees in remote cities, you'll see them engage at, oh, we've got a team of three in Phoenix and a team of two over here. The other thing that's driving it is this, all the other products in our life, digital products in our life, we buy by seat so if i've got an employee i hire a new one i I buy them a membership to slack i buy them a membership to dropbox why can't office work the same i should buy them a seat at an office space and on-demand you know uh office space and so i think we'll start to see more and more stuff move that way as opposed to this idea of i'll lease out ten thousand square feet in a building and try to fill that up with people. I I just think there'll be far less of that.
0: You were a pastor's kid so tell me about your
1: childhood what you know what was your family life like yeah so i've got uh i got three brothers so i grew up with my mom and my dad and my three brothers and and a dog um probably doesn't get a whole lot more american than that in the suburban or or at least uh this proverbial american right Uh, suburban uh white family and the picket fence and and that's kind of how i grew up um yeah my dad was a pastor, and still is, so I grew up uh going to going to church uh, in a Christian house, and then you know all boys, so uh, no sisters. <laughs> so my poor mother she had to, she had to deal with that growing up and uh none of us were really into well, I shouldn't say that my my younger brother was was really into sports, but um we watched a lot of sports, but not a, a lot of us played it. um we were there was a lot of music. It was kind of the thing in my, my family. And so growing up, it was, that's kind of what I was into, art, music. Um, and uh, I liked the technical side of theater and the technical side of, of production and then that kind of thing. I, I got very into that. Um, but that's how I grew up. I grew up going to church, a large church here in Omaha of a few thousand people. And so that was you know my, my, um, my church experience was not that of like a, like a small church community it was very large and and so when you're in a large church community like that of thousands of people everybody knew my dad and so even still being in omaha i i often like weekly get oh you're steve yost's son you know and then it's usually followed by i knew you when you were just this tall <laughs> um so uh yeah that's that's what you know even omaha being the size it is it's kind of got that uh, big small town feel to it at times and when your dad is on stage in front of thousands every week you kind of grow up uh, a little bit in the limelight i guess um so that's kind of what childhood was like in a nutshell
0: you you mentioned uh this interest in fine arts i i really liked this transition from. The synthesis you realize between creativity and fine art, business, and that formula culminates in entrepreneurship for you. But sticking with your childhood, where where that emerged from? How did fine art
1: show up when you were younger for you? Yeah. So specifically, my dad is a is a worship and music pastor. One of the the biggest memories for me and. things for me as I was growing up is he would do these um, productions, these musical cantatas at Christmas and Easter every year. And I mean, I'm not kidding you, in the 90s, 20,000 people would show up to these things. I mean, he would do, I think the auditorium sat, you know, 2000 or 2500. And so there'd be, you know, 10 or 12 performances over four or five days. Um, buses would come into these things and you know and and so Christmas Christmas would start in October and then you finished Christmas you took a week off and then Easter started in January and Easter finished up you know by the time you tore it all down late April and you take a few months off and then and so I grew up in that I, I I mean you know I was if I wasn't when I was very young, I was just there because my mom was involved too, and so the kids we would just read books and watch. And then as I got a little older, I would be involved doing something. You know, when I was really young, I hand props to people or you know something <laughs> like that. And then um, as I got older, I, I I found my interest kind of more on the tech side of things, and so I kind of got into the sound and lighting. And, staging and stage design and all that kind of thing. And so um, that's, I think, where a lot of it came from for me is, is that. And as I got into high school, then I got you know, more involved in things outside of the productions, just at church. But you know, those were, I, I, very early on, I experienced very, very large productions, large-scale productions. And uh, that's kind of, I think, where a lot of my interest and in formation came as far as creativity. You've written uh, something somewhere that I picked up, and I, I, I wrote it down.
0: You were writing about yourself, and you said, I'm eternally curious and
1: always learning new things. I've always just had this, um, yeah, I look at things, and I think, oh, that looks kind of interesting. I wonder how that works, you know? Um, or, or I could, I don't know, I kind of want to try that, you know? Uh, now, I should, I should preface that with... Um, that's not everything. Like, for instance, I am not an adventurous eater. I eat steak and potatoes. (laughs) So I do not look at, you know, adventurous food and go, oh, that looks kind of interesting. I should try that. No, thank you. Um, But uh, when it, yeah, when it comes to, you know, again, like going back to my childhood, I remember a lot of those, you know, you're in these productions and I would think like, huh, I wonder how that staging piece Worked? How did they build that? Or I would just, you know, I would just—that's probably the annoying, you know, eight-year-old kid just walking around asking people, "How do you do that? How how do you do that? You know, how does that work? Show me." But I've just kind of been wired that way. I'm I'm also an Enneagram Five. If if anyone listening is an Enneagram person, and so I, I'm a I'm a thinker, processor, reader. I like to understand things more deeply. I like to spend time with ideas, and and so I think just. know, kind of out of those things, I've just been always wired to to give things a shot, to to try to kind of figure out figure that out. Things that I find interesting, I want to learn about them more than just I want to learn how they work. What what makes that work? And then I want to find out, what if I could do that? How how could I how could I try to make that work? And that's very interesting to me. And that is something
0: you feel is threaded through to what you do now with your entrepreneurship.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that one of the things that I learned in college, as a, or really sticks out to me in college as a as a music major, is um, there are there are rules, right? So if you think about music, like there are notes, there are staff lines, there are time signatures. There's all these these rules, and the creativity happens within those rules in fact some, sometimes their creativity is figuring out can i break the rule is there a way to but it's always it always is glued to that that common set of, of rules that have to exist i'm not a like push the limits person that that's not really me like how far could we push this how that that's not me as much as just more the like what would happen if i put this and this together or i saw someone do this over here in this medium i wonder if i could make that work over on this medium it's that kind of curiosity that i think has always kind of driven me it's what drove me to get my dad's golf clubs out when i was six and i broke my nose when i got hit in the face with one you know so it's it's not always served me well um but uh but that's for better or for worse just kind of how i'm wired yeah
0: your LinkedIn profile has an image of you doing either some amazing dance move or a martial art technique. I have to know what's going on.
1: (laughs) We were were supposed to be taking serious headshots um, for for the company website. And uh, anyone who's, who's probably worked with me and knows that I have a hard time getting real serious and they have sometimes a hard time wrangling me. So, uh, I think they took like eight shots. Like one of them actually worked as a headshot and most of the other ones looked like that. And I decided that that's the one I needed for my professional profile.
0: Uh, always going against the grain.
1: Yeah, I guess uh. so. <laughs>
0: Yesterday has been serial entrepreneur, Micah Yost. Micah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Hey, you could heckle me. That, mm.
1: That'd be a first. Maybe that would be fun. Yes, that's right. Boo! <laughs> Boo! <laughs>
0: That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar Mctizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's Radio Show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Live's Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.